Welcome to Season 2 of the Preoccupation Podcast. This season explores the mid to late 19th century of Ottoman Palestine, and, uh, and it takes us on a journey with stops in Istanbul, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and, of course, everywhere in Palestine. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, first of all, thank you. You can do so by following the link in the episode description. You can also find me on Instagram at preoccupationpod. Otherwise, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians. There never was, there never will be. you'll recall from all the way back in the earliest episodes of season one, I introduced you to Palestine's social classes. I introduced you to the urban notables who, whether it was in Al-Quds or Nablus, they derived their legitimacy from their noble lineage, their role as religious scholars, and their position in commerce. Then there were the Fallahin, the peasants, the group to which the vast majority of Palestinians belonged, who held their place in the social hierarchy through their strategic use of violence, and they were able to keep their own tribes held in place by projecting that violence inward. Lastly, there were the Bedouins, a semi-nomadic people who reigned supreme in the large swaths of territory between the nodes of urban development. These groups, particularly the urban notables and the fallahin, were locked in a web of social and economic interdependence. While the forces of modernity struck these groups in very different ways. Unlike many things in Palestine, the winners, they won big. But the losers, they lost virtually everything. Now, I, I know that at the end of the last episode, I said that I would be speaking about Palestine's less fortunate populations next, and that really was my plan. But as I started putting that episode together, it turned into a, I think by the end of it, like a 12,000-word monster. And after a quick social media survey, I discovered that most of my listeners would find the, I mean, they find the one-hour episodes a little easier to digest. So... This is now a two-part episode, and in the first part, I'm going to focus on the urban notables and their response to modernity. Creatively, the story just, just kind of worked better this way. But I can assure you that the next episode, inshallah, will deliver what I promised. So let's get on with it, shall we? I'm going to start off here with just a brief reintroduction of the urban notables. 
the highest level of the urban elite were comprised of families that traced their lineage either to the Prophet Muhammad or one of his close companions or, or something like that. They held posts like the Mufti of Al-Quds, uh, Naqib al-Ashraf, that was the head of the uh, notable families, or the Imam of Masjid al-Aqsa. And those are the urban notables that I am speaking about. Now, if you think of these families in the way that we think of even like extended nuclear families as just a you know grandmother or grandfather and a group of people related by blood who just really cared about each other, you may be missing something here. The notable families can be better thought of not as just large versions of the nuclear family, but as institutions. Unlike all institutions, the notable family itself, not just its individual members, but the family itself, possessed a unique vision and mission that was separate from, and actually often in conflict with, the individual desires of some of its members. In other words, the families themselves had unique identities that were distinct from the sum of their membership. If this is at all confusing, I've thought up an analogy that I hope is useful. I think the closest thing that a contemporary audience, the closest institution that a contemporary audience can compare with the urban notable families would be like a modern corporation. So you have a modern corporation like Walmart, which has its own identity. We, in modern terms, call that a brand. And that brand or its identity is obviously influenced by the contributions of the Walton family in this case. But it is also so much more than that. I mean, Steve Jobs was the founder and CEO of Apple, but Apple computers had an identity that was unique from Steve Jobs. And that is because every product, every document, every meeting, every product launch, all of this goes into building the overall identity of the corporation. Well, when it comes to the notable families of Palestine, they too had their own identities. An identity that was more than the collective desires of its living members. These notable families were vessels of past knowledge. A knowledge which was sometimes stored in physical documents that the families kept in their possession. By the way, just by, by way of example, when the, uh, the founding father of the Husseini dynasty, the Husseini family, received an official appointment to the post of Naqib al-Ashraf, that document remained in family possession. But sometimes this knowledge could simply be passed down just as a family story, something that was told at the Diwan, and uh, it, these could be cautionary tales about a course of action taken by an ancestor that irked the sultan or, or started a war. Um, each little bit of knowledge, though, stored in the family's collective memory, goes on to permanently alter the way that that particular family pursued its goals of advancing the interests of its members. All right, so from now on, when I talk about the notable families, it would really help if you thought of them not just as families, but as institutions. And so with that out of the way, 
I'm going to make a big claim right off the bat. Considering the scale of political, social, economic, and technological change that came to Palestine during the period of the Tanzimat, you may be expecting an hour-long podcast about how this conservative group of traditional notables failed to adopt to the times and were swept by the wayside. But it's... it's precisely the opposite. There is no group of traditional leadership that I can think of who adopted to the challenges of modernity better than the Palestinian notables. None. They responded to modernity, quite honestly, almost as if they saw it coming. And I invite any of you, all of you, to do a deep dive into the late Ottoman Mashraq. And that is the the part of the Ottoman Empire encompassing modern-day Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, Iraq, the Arabian Peninsula. And try to find me a group, an entire subset of a society who did a better job than the urban notables of Palestine in adapting to the changes of modernity. And there was just nothing inevitable about this. And I should be clear, this does not apply to all of the notable families. Modernity brought with it challenges that forced the notables to make to make very difficult decisions. And some families, I mean, just off the top of my head here, like the Al-Qasim family and the Nimr families of Nablus, they just could not get on board with the intrusive nature of the Tanzimat. And so they were, I mean, really, to a large extent, left behind. Others like the Abdul Hadis, also incidentally of Nablus. They had gone all in with Muhammad Ali Pasha's Kadival regime and really had a hard time when the old boss, the Ottomans, came back. But overall, the notables of Palestine came out of the Tanzimat with a massively improved position vis-a-vis the rest of Palestine's inhabitants and in relation to the Ottoman state itself. And I think the story of this spectacular transition from pre-modernity to modernity can best be told through the life of one man. And that is Yusuf Dhiya al-Khalidi. Yusuf Dhiya was one of seven siblings, uh, one of whom, quite importantly, was uh, Yasin al-Khalidi, who was his older brother and was a well-respected religious scholar in his own right. Uh, The Khalidi family, who I've mentioned so many times before, had occupied positions in the Sharia courts for generations. In terms of their influence and prestige, they really were only rivaled by the Husseinis. These two families, along with really just a handful of other Jerusalem families, they made up the Ashraf, the nobility, and they essentially ruled over Al-Quds for much of the Ottoman era. The proclamation of the Hatta Sharif in 1839 and the return of the Ottomans that same year began the rapid expansion of state authority that completely changed the way the Palestinian notables could access or wield power. Yusuf Liya al-Khalidi was born in 1842, just three years after that initial proclamation. 
And his childhood alone gives us a glimpse into the critical decision-making of the notable families as they attempted to respond to the changes of the times. Yusuf Dliya began his education in the traditional Islamic system. And he had every intention of attending Al-Azhar and becoming a Sharia court official, like his father and brothers and the dozens of Khalidis who came before him. Now, to put things in perspective, Yusuf Dliya is 14 years old when the 1856 Hatti Humayun proclamation is made, the one that effectively abolished the Sharia. And so he was right in the middle of his studies. So Yusuf Dliya and his family are able to see that the prestige of the institutions that they chaired just vanished right in front of them. The Khalidis also witnessed the pretty spectacular improvement in station experienced by their Christian neighbors. Yusuf Dliya al-Khalidi had a front row seat in Al-Quds as Christians from Al-Quds attended missionary schools which allowed them to slowly acquire positions in the Ottoman bureaucracy. At this point, none of his siblings are enrolled in any of the local missionary schools or the Alliance Jewish schools. I don't know if I've mentioned them before, but these were schools that were founded by a Paris-based Jewish organization with the aim of raising the standards of Oriental Jews. In any case, I want you to remember that the father of Yusuf Liyah would have been well aware of the fact that the missionary schools aimed to convert his children. But despite that, historian Bashir Nafa gives us a glimpse into what unfolded next within the Khalidi family. Quote, Born into one of the most prominent Jerusalemite families, with both his father and grandfather being senior ulama, Yusuf Liyah Pasha al-Khalidi was first educated in a small traditional school near Al-Aqsa Mosque. His wish was to complete his studies in Al-Azhar, but on his father's wishes, he was sent to a Protestant college in Malta for two years. From there, he traveled to Istanbul, where he spent a year in a medical college, and one year and a half in the American Roberts College for Engineering, which was established in the Ottoman capital in 1863. End quote. Now, I have some sources which say it was actually his brother, Yasin, who insisted that he attend the Protestant college. I mean, but whichever one is true, it gives us an idea as to how these notable families, these institutions, were responding to the challenges of the times. The decision to send Yusuf Liyat to that Protestant college in Malta was made merely four years after the Hatti Humayun proclamation. So that means that Yusuf Liyat's family made the decision to have their child attend one of these new institutions relatively quickly. But to give you an idea of how cautiously the Khalidi family made this decision, consider the fact that while Yusuf was not the youngest, he was the first and last of his siblings to get this type of education. The other siblings received only their traditional education. 
So it's almost as if the Khalidi family were hedging their bets, seeing what would become of this, I don't know what to call it, a gamble or investment. Well, I tend to think of it more as a gamble, and frankly speaking, the gamble paid off big. But to explain just how big, I need to tell you just a little bit more about the political changes that were happening in Palestine as a result of the Tanzimat reforms. I've, I've clumsily told you for hours in this season's episodes about how fixated the Ottoman government was on the expansion of its sovereignty over every square inch of its empire. Well, for hundreds of years, the Ottomans ruled somewhat indirectly through a couple of offices that I introduced in season one. And these were institutions like the Mufti of Al-Quds, Imam of Masjid Al-Aqsa, and most importantly, Naqib Al-Ashraf, the chief of the nobility. Well, the new philosophy of modern state building that came with the Ottoman reforms no longer allowed for the kind of indigenous self-rule that characterized Ottoman Palestine for hundreds of years. It's not that these offices were to now no longer exist, but rather they would no longer be the legitimate arbitrators between the general population and the state. And so in Palestine's urban areas, a new position was created that was intended to be an official part of the new Ottoman bureaucracy. And that is the position of Ra'is al-Baladiyya, literally the head of the municipality, or just more simply, the mayorship. There is a lot to say about this position, but it is important to note right off the bat that this new office was distinct from the positions of the pre-reform era notables, in that the mayor and the councilmen could not collect taxes themselves. It was distinct in that the other offices allowed the notables to do things like collect taxes, and Ra'is al-Baladiyya could not do that themselves. Tax collectors now had to be hired directly by the state. The office of Multazim, that the the kind that allowed Zahir al-Umar to become the strong man of Akka, that was to be no more. And yet, the mayorship and the municipal councilmen that, together with the mayor, rounded off the local leadership, became a new seat for the notable families to compete over. The first municipal building opened in Jerusalem in 1863. And... It was actually the first municipal building to open anywhere in the empire outside of Istanbul. Well, in 1867, Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi became mayor of Jerusalem, one of several Ottoman positions he would hold for the better part of the late 19th century. The story of Yusuf Dia really is the story of Palestine's notables. Because just like the Khalidis, many of Palestine's notable families all across Palestine were nimble enough to plug their children into modern institutions, recognize the new positions of power and prestige, and catapult their households into the region's future. In Nablus, it was the Tuqans and others who successfully made this transformation. In Yaffa, a city that I will be speaking about a lot more in the next episode. 
about half a dozen notable families, including that of uh, Sa'ad and Abu Khadra, they were the ones who emerged as the new Ottoman elite. In Haifa, the Mahdi family, descendants of the Mufti of Atlit, who brought down Haim Farhi all the way back in season one, they took their place as the elite in the modern era. And in Gaza, the Shawa and Husseini families, not to be confused with the Jerusalem Husseinis, they also followed the same recipe, retaining their status as the premier families of their towns. For reasons that will become clear in the next episode, this new reality, this world wherein households competed for mayorships and positions on the city council, created a clear social, political, and economic battlefield that allowed for the various families to compete with one another, but to do so under a legal framework that had much clearer rules and limitations than the pre-modern era. And again, I'm going to repeat what I said at the beginning of this episode. When the Ottoman reforms began, there was just no guarantee that the notable families were going to survive. There was nothing inevitable about their successful transition. And yet, successfully transition is precisely what many of them did. The outcome being a relatively minor game of winners and losers. I mean, sure, they lost some of the privileges that they enjoyed for hundreds of years, but in this new world of nation-states, particularly one predicated on equality, the nobility were bound to lose some privileges. But all things considered, they came out as big winners. Yusuf Liat's coronation as mayor made him effectively the new leader among the notables of Jerusalem. And this reinforced the Khalidi family's position as arbitrators on behalf of the high port. And this moment, which was undoubtedly a major victory for him and the entire Khalidi family, can really almost be thought of as, as the moment that the notables emerged from the fire of the reforms with their skin intact. This moment in history, with Yusuf Liat becoming mayor, was symbolically captured with one massive change. A change that you could actually see in old photographs if you have access to them, and they're available even today. In 1861, a new headdress was introduced into the world of Palestinian notables, which locals refer to as a tarbush. In the West, it's known as a fez. And Ottoman reformers introduced it as the new marker of Ottoman modernity. Having made its introduction first in Istanbul and Cairo in the 1840s, it made its way to Palestine in the early 1860s. And by the time this first municipal building opened in 1863, the Tarbush had swept through the urban notables of Palestine as if to coronate them upon their successful emergence from this wild reform period. They had done it. From turbans to Tarbush, from religious clerics to bureaucratic clerks, the notables of Palestine 
and their new mayor, Yusuf Dliya al-Khalidi, came out as winners. And again, it wasn't just Yusuf Dliya that came out as a winner, but his entire family. I mean, through my research, I stumbled across a book called uh, Petitioning the Sultan by Yuval bin Basit, and buried within its pages are petitions made by residents of other towns against Yusuf Dliya al-Khalidi. And these petitions claim that he was using his positions to advance the interests of the allies of the Khalidi family. And honestly, I just have no doubt that Yusuf Dliya al-Khalidi did, on some level, operate as a blunt instrument of the Khalidi family institution, just like the good old days of the Palestinian notables, but now with even more state legitimacy. So on some level, when you look out at the new political landscape of Palestine and the late end of this reform period, you find a notable class that is very similar in composition to the pre-modern ruling class. But I want to give you the impression that the composition of the ruling class was exactly the same as it was at the beginning of the 19th century. In fact, it was different in a few key ways. And I'll tell you a couple of stories to help kind of help you make sense of this new elite. Between 1867 and 1868, Mayor Yusuf Dliya al-Khalidi was involved in several important projects in and around Jerusalem, one of which actually was the establishment of an Ottoman state school, the kind that I introduced in the last episode. Well, he played a central role in securing the local funding that was necessary to make these schools even viable. And as the face of an institution as famous and you know, well-liked and well-understood as the Khalidi family, his association with the school probably went a long way to quelling any fears that local families may still have had about sending their children to such an institution. But much to Yusuf's dismay, the high port did not make him the school's administrator upon its completion. Instead, in Yusuf Dliat's own words, the authorities brought in a, quote, Turk. Now, this is significant because Yusuf Dliat expressed his frustration using a language that is very familiar to us now but was very new for the time. In order to explain why this is significant, listen to this quote from Palestinian historian Dr. Muhammad Muslah. Quote, Until the last 10 years of the empire, the Ottoman state was not Turkish in an exclusive racial sense. It was rather Turkish in a linguistic and cultural sense. An Ottoman subject who spoke Turkish did not necessarily identify himself as a Turk. He was rather an Ottoman subject, even though he would racially be Greek, Serb, Bulgar, Romanian, Turk, Arab, Kurd, or Armenian. End quote. Now, I don't know for sure if this school administrator was an ethnic Turk or simply someone who spoke Turkish. I suspect it was the former, since Yusuf Dliya himself and many educated Palestinians at this time would have spoken Ottoman Turkish. But what makes this distinction so significant is that for Yusuf Dliya to identify this ethno-linguistic distinction means that he was aware 
of his own peculiar Arabness. Do not misunderstand this to mean that Yusuf Liat and the new Palestinian notables were Arab nationalists. Yusuf Liat lived and died as very much a loyal Ottoman subject. I only mean that he was aware of his Arab identity. And this, this was new. Another way that this new Ottoman elite was different was in its religious composition. I mentioned over the last few episodes how the demands of the Ottoman state required an educated elite to help support the modernization campaign. And I also mentioned that, largely due to the presence of European and American missionaries, Christian Palestinians benefited, I mean frankly disproportionately, from the new educational landscape. The result is that the new Palestinian notable class expanded horizontally, if you will, to now include a collection of notable Christian and to a lesser extent Jewish families as well. These Christians in particular and their children attended the same schools as the Muslim notables, lived in close quarters, and for the remainder of the Ottoman era would live deeply interwoven lives with their Muslim neighbors. To give you a real sense of this new cross-sectarian brotherhood, I'll share with you one of my favorite stories. But to do so, I'm just going to need to set the scene a little. In much the same way that Yusuf Dhiya al-Khalidi was the scion of the Khalidi family, the Husseini family, who is just, just a hair slower at responding to the changes of the Tanzimat, they also eventually managed to produce their own cream-of-the-crop candidate, and his name was Al-Hajj Salim Al-Husseini. Between 1882 until just about the close of the century, Hajj Salim managed to hold the mayorship of Jerusalem. Contemporary accounts paint a magnanimous figure, wildly popular mayor who is widely loved uh, and in fact, widely loved by different segments of Jerusalem society. His close friend was an Orthodox Christian named Jirjas Johariya. The Johariya family emerged in the mid-19th century as Christian notables, and they developed close bonds with the Husseinis. Jirjas had numerous jobs uh, throughout his adult life, one of which was the municipal representative for the Orthodox Christian community of Jerusalem, serving under his friend Salim al-Husseini. Jirjas also had a variety of other jobs throughout his adult life, uh, including a position as the chief landscaper for the Haram al-Sharif compound. Much of what we know about Salim al-Husseini is chronicled in the diaries of Jirjas Jauhariya's son, Wasif. And in the diary of Wasif Johariye, Wasif has this spectacular entry. So he starts by saying, quote, My father was a dear friend of the late Hajj Salim Effendi al-Husseini. Hajj Salim al-Husseini rose to a high status in the country, and the Ottoman government had to bear him in mind given his patriotic stances and the love that people, particularly the farmers, had for him. He was... God bless his soul, a member of the Administrative Council of Jerusalem and head of Jerusalem's municipality for 22 years 
and truly served the city. It was he who had the public sewage system built within the wall. He is responsible for paving the streets of Old Jerusalem, which he both conceived and saw through, thus transforming the city into a model for cleanliness, beauty, and marvel, particularly for foreigners who used to come to visit its holy sites. He was well known for his diplomacy, generosity, honesty, justice, and humility, which earned him the love of the people. He set a diwan, a special reception at his home in Sheikh Jarrah, where farmers who had been subjected to injustice went to seek help, preferring to resort to his judgment rather than to the courts of the state. Since my father was a lawyer with a profound knowledge of the law, Has Salim came to rely on him in his diwan work and during his trips to the villages and lands of the Jerusalem district. Now, Wasif here just goes on to say, My father was always amazed by Hajj Salim's extreme humility. When he sat to eat mensaf in any village, uh, he made sure that all the villagers, the men, the poor, and the children, also sat down and ate their fill. He often grabbed the meat himself and handed it to the poor until everyone was fed. End quote. Well, Contrary to the conventional wisdom, Jirzas Johariya's privileged position in the city did surprisingly little to improve his financial situation. And one year, on the eve of the Orthodox Easter, Jirzas Johariya was stone broke. Now in the West, Easter is a pretty subdued holiday. But in Jerusalem, the Christian Orthodox community of the late 19th century celebrated Easter with gifts and a big feast, and I guess in a manner not that dissimilar from the way that Christmas is celebrated in the West. So you can imagine then that Georges's dire financial situation was a point of extreme stress for him. Well, it just so happened that Georges was invited to his friend Salim al-Husseini's home a few days before the Orthodox Easter. Given Salim's reputation and their close relationship, I think it would have been reasonable for Georges to ask his friend to spot him a few piasters. But as the evening wore on, Georges just couldn't muster the nerve. Near the end of the night, Salim makes an odd request of his friend. He asks that Georges spend the night at his home, he explains how being mayor has kept him so busy and, and he enjoyed the company of his old friend so much that it would be a shame to just end the night so abruptly. And so he implored him, please stick around. And so Georges spent the night. The two men spent the next day together telling stories, playing backgammon, and Salim asks him to spend the night again. Now, Georges insists that he cannot, he needs to return to his family. Plus, Georges adds, tomorrow is Good Friday, and he needs to return for the Orthodox Easter. But Salim al-Husseini just would not budge. He insisted that he stay another night, and tomorrow afternoon, they will both make their way to the old city. And they'll part ways when Salim al-Husseini goes to attend Salat al-Jum'ah, the Friday prayers at Masjid al-Aqsa, and Georges will go to worship at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so, that is what happened. 
The next morning, the two men made their way to the old city and parted ways. I'll let Wasif Johariyeh himself tell us what happened next. Quote, As my father entered the house, my mother met him with a smiling face. This is too much, Abu Khalil. Abu Khalil was the kunya of, uh, of Jirjas Johariyeh. It was his honorific. So she says, This is too much, Abu Khalil. What did you buy all this for? She said, pointing to the provisions placed in one of the hall's corners. A large hamper of rice, a canister of ghee, a canister of oil, a small hamper of green coffee, a bag of flour, a canister of castor oil, 15 kilos of soap, 15 kilos of sugar, 9 kilos of simolina for making ma'mul, as well as dates and walnuts for the fillings. My father smiled, having understood that the sender was the magnanimous Hajj Salim Effendi. When he entered his bedroom, he found that a new black broadcloth suit lay on his bed with three gold Ottoman liras in the pocket of the waistcoat. This is but a small picture of the strong ties between my father and the venerable Husseini family of Jerusalem and how friendship used to be." End quote. I love that story. And I love that story for so many reasons. On a, on a human level, this is just a beautiful story about a just mayor who either intuitively sensed that his friend was in need or caught wind of it through the social circles in Al-Quds. But this story also functions almost like a photograph capturing a beautiful moment in the history of Palestine. A moment where Palestine's indigenous inhabitants overcame both the relentless pressures of modernity and, in the case of the Orthodox Christians, the seductive power of European patrons and chose a shared future together. You know, I find this time period so so refreshing. I love thinking about it. I love getting lost in it. I love talking about it. And I think there's something, something quintessentially Palestinian about my particular brand of nostalgia. And I guess with that, and this is as good a time as any to ask, to ask you all a question. For many Palestinians, Palestine remains the place that they think of as home, even though maybe they've never been there and neither have their parents. I mean, that spirit clearly animates the very existence of this podcast. But it's an imagined home, of course. I don't mean imaginary. I mean imagined. It's a home not built of wood and bricks, but it's a home built on stories family photos, folk songs, and ultimately, on some level, a shared mission. Well, I want to ask, how far back do you think you could travel in time and find a Palestine that still felt like home? How far back in time do you think you could travel and speak with a Palestinian 
who you felt was familiarly Palestinian. I'm obsessed with this question because, I mean, as a core point of this podcast is to find those first moments of national consciousness. And I can assure you that national consciousness does not go infinitely into the past. I mean, think about this, right? You could only travel about three or four hundred years back before the English language became unintelligible. And so that principle on some level must apply here. How far back could we go and find a Palestine that we recognize? One that we think feels like Palestine. Well, with that in mind, I'm going to make another bold claim this episode. And this is perhaps my boldest claim. I think it is precisely at this juncture of the story of Palestine that contemporary Palestinians can look out and see something that they recognize as intimately familiar. And so, I would like to coronate Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi and Hajj Salim Effendi al-Husseini as the honorary first Palestinians. Now, before anyone misunderstands me, Please hear me out. A nation can be best described as a group of people rooted in a particular geography with a common story of the past, a common understanding of the present, and a common vision for the future. And when I look at Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi and read the snippets of his writing that I have access to, I see that he, like myself, saw in himself the reflection of an ancient past that was at once Arab and Islamic, but at the same time rooted in cities and towns whose place names trace back to languages that predate Arabic by thousands of years. Through his education, Yusuf Dliat and contemporary Palestinians share a common understanding of what Palestine is and where Palestine is. I feel like I could go back in time and speak with Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi or speak with Hajj Salim al-Husseini and see across from me a Palestinian that I recognize. And this is despite the fact that Yusuf Dia and Hajj Salim probably never in their lives refer to themselves as Palestinians. Yusuf Dia, in fact, said quite clearly, Watani al-Quds al-Sharif. My homeland is al-Quds al-Sharif. But that's always the case with pioneers. The first person who played a few strings in a particular order didn't realize that they put together the first country tune. Only in hindsight do we look back and say, Aha! Yes, that's the tune where it all started. And that is what I feel like I found with Yusuf Dia and Hash Salim. I know the tune of Palestine. I felt it beating in my chest for as long as I can remember. And with Yusuf Dia and Hash Salim, I too can hear the faint rhythm of the Palestinian collective heartbeat. 
beginning to come alive. <laughs>